0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices and we are very happy to be exploring some current topics this week with tyler curtis who is a young voices contributor and tyler this is your first time on the program so i'm going to ask you for the sake of those who are
1: just getting to know you for the very first time tell us a little bit about yourself Well, thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, Yeah, my name is Tyler Curtis. I work as a loan officer at a mid-sized community bank in Missouri. Um, In my my free time, uh, I write about politics, I write about history, economics, and pretty much anything else that interests me.
0: Well, I'm looking at an article you penned on um, how to reform student loans. And I know this is on a lot of people's minds today, thanks to the President's Student Loan Forgiveness Program. but I, you know, I have to admit, I hear a lot of people complaining about it. I haven't heard very many people bringing forth solutions. I think you've got a pretty decent solution that you're you're offering here. Let's, for for the sake of those who maybe are not familiar with the issue, can you just kind of sketch out for us what's in the bigger picture? What is the problem that we're seeing right now with student loans? That the president would step forward and say, you know what? Maybe we'll just go ahead and offer forgiveness.
1: Yeah, so we've seen a huge increase in student loan balances over the past few decades. Uh, something like 650% just over the past 30 to 40 years and that number of outstanding balances. Um, so clearly it, it's something that's far outpaced um, uh, what we might normally expect cost to increase by, um, and it, that causes a burden on individual finances. Um, and the president, I think rightly so, has empathy for those people. Uh, he sees uh, some families struggling uh, to make those payments. It's money that they could be spending on uh, buying nicer homes or cars or uh, other normal family expenses, and he wants to help them out. Um, so he, but what he decided to do was uh, instead of trying to reform. Uh, uh, the loan program in the future to make sure that families aren't burned, burdened with this type of debt uh, is just to forgive the debt outright. So, he forgave uh, via executive order, he forgave $10, 000, up to $10,000 of student debt uh, for every individual making $125,000 or less, and then up to $20,000 uh, of student loan debt if you were eligible for Pell Grants when you were in college. So, it's a really uh, blanket policy.
0: You know, um because you write about and, and uh, speak about uh, economic issues, you'll be familiar with this, but uh, part of economics is learning to recognize that, okay, what's the intended goal of some particular policy and what are the unintended consequences? Talk to me about some of the unintended consequences that have come about wh- by, by making student loans so easy to get for students. First of all, what's it done to the cost of education?
1: Well, it's very clearly increased the cost of education. Um, We can know this uh, just intuitively. If you subsidize something or you make it easier for someone to purchase something and and put off the costs until later, uh, they're more likely to buy. it. And there are actually several empirical studies that that bear this out. Um, There was a study done just a few years ago. I believe it was at the University of Wisconsin uh, that found that universities will actually increase their tuition 20 to 60 cents for every dollar uh, increase uh, in, in federal student loans. Um, there are some universities, actually, I didn't know this until recently, but uh, there are some universities that don't allow their students to take out uh, federal student loans. Um, and when you know it, but those universities uh, increase their tuition at much lower paces uh, than those that accept them.
0: So with the, with the higher cost in education thanks to the easy availability of this money it sounds like the the debt forgiveness could actually lead to more of the problem rather than actually uh, addressing the conditions that caused it in the first place talk to me about the reform that that you're proposing here and and what what would it do
1: yeah my reform it's it's certainly not a silver bullet by any means it's not going to um it's not going to solve every problem it's not going to make everybody uh, significantly better off. There are certainly reforms that need to be paired with it. Uh, but my idea is very simple. It's it's just to say that students will no longer be eligible to finance 100% of the net costs of their college expenses. So let's say um, that the student has $10,000 of tuition that they're going to owe for an academic year, they get you know, $5,000 worth of scholarships, Today, um, they can receive $5,000 of federal student loans to cover that deficit. Uh, My idea is just to simply say, they're no longer going to be eligible for that full $5,000. They're going to have to cover at least a certain percentage of that net cost on their own. So whether that's their parents paying for it, whether that's themselves paying for it through their savings, or they're going to be working while they're in college. Um, But the point is just to make the student or his, his or her family pay for that tuition up front. So you're
0: talking a down payment would actually help them have some skin in the game rather than just, you know, have a handout.
1: That's correct. And I like that phrase, skin in the game. Um, it, makes, it makes the borrower think a little bit more about the actual cost. So if you're going to have a student going to school and they're looking at the tuition and saying, well, you know, that's, that's quite a bit of money for me to be spending right now. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. If you allow them to finance all of that cost, hey, now I don't have to I don't have to pay for it for years. Um, and if the President's going to be forgiving my debt, I may never have to pay it at all. So maybe I don't really care about the cost so much. Um, but if I'm required to pay for a certain amount of it up front, 1000 three thousand $2,000, 3000 whatever that that number may end up being, I'm going to be a lot more price sensitive. So I'm going to look for universities that uh, give me more bang for my buck. Maybe I don't need to go to that out-of-state school that charges three times as much as tuition. Maybe I don't need to go to that fancy university with the, the great football team that I've always watched growing up as a kid. Um, I'm going to be a lot more... Um, well, I'm going to be, I wouldn't say responsible, but I'm going to think a little bit more about uh, the price that I'm paying.
0: Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, look, there are still people paying off tacos that they bought, you know, 10 years ago on their credit card because, well, you know, I can finance it and I'll get it paid off. But, you know, you make minimum payments and 10 years later, you're still paying for those tacos. How, um, talk to me about how this helps the borrower too. How does this benefit the borrower by requiring the down payment?
1: Yeah. So if they have a down payment, um, they're obviously going to be financing less of the cost of going to school. Um, That means that they're going to pay less interest on that principal balance that they have. Um, It may also incentivize them, like we talked about earlier, uh, incentivize them to think more about the price. So if they're more price sensitive, they may choose schools that um, are a little bit less expensive. So that too will ensure that their student loan balances once they graduate will be lower than they were would be otherwise. Tyler, you point out that uh,
0: this is sure to raise an objection. In fact, you address this objection in your article. Someone's gonna step up and say, now, wait a minute, isn't this going to make it harder for people who can't afford to pay upfront for their education or at least pay that down payment? And I liked your answer. How do, how do you address that concern?
1: Well, I, I think it's important that we just answer it frankly. And the answer is yes. Uh, it will actually cause fewer people to go to school. There may be a variety of reasons for that. Uh, almost certainly some people won't be able to afford the cost. Um, but other people may find that it's just not worth it. Um, particularly those that may find that uh, they were able to finance most of their college expenses. Maybe they weren't eligible for as many scholarships. Uh, but really, this is this is part of the point of the reform. Um, it's to ensure that uh, fewer people go to college. Um, certainly, those that that maybe uh, it would it would be better for those individuals if they didn't go. Um, there are a lot of people that go to college, they rack up student loan debt, and then they don't graduate. So they don't actually accrue any benefits from going to college because they don't have that degree, but they're still saddled with the cost. So this uh, this reform, this down payment reform, um, should we should see a, assuming that it was implemented, we should see uh, a, a drop in enrollment, and because of the a decreased demand and and uh, college education, uh, we'll also see a fall in tuition. And so I love, that would be good for, for those who do end up going to school. I love how you bring it back to, in the end, we're
0: not talking about, well, how can we make school cheaper you know, for students so much as, how can we stop the continuing problem of people taking out and then defaulting on loans to, to pay for their education? And I think this is a really solid way to approach that.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And I also think, um, that the uh, the difficulty actually of of students paying for their own college has been wildly overstated. We've all seen the graphs of, of tuition, college expenses uh, going up much, much higher than or much faster rate than than tuition in general. Um, but if you just look at what uh, what individuals can make today uh, by working, we can see that actually it's not that much more expensive to go to school today. Uh, or in some cases actually less expensive to attend college today than it was a few decades ago. If we just look at uh, the minimum wage in 1990, uh, it was actually $3.80. Um, so to pay for one semester of tuition, forty-eight hundred dollars. Uh, that meant that you had to work about twelve hundred hours to pay for that. Uh, today, the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five. So to pay for one semester of college tuition, you'd have to work about fourteen hundred dollars, fourteen hundred hours. So not that much more.
0: Okay. Once again, we are talking with Tyler Curtis. He is a Young Voices contributor. Tyler, where can people find you on social media? We've got about twenty seconds.
1: Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Tyler Curtis forty-two.
0: To moving forward with young voices we are happy to welcome torben halber back to the program he is checking in from uh, berlin germany today and uh, torben great to have you on the show once again
2: thanks uh, glad to be here
0: so i know there may be some people who are hearing your voice for the first time and uh, they'd like to know just a little bit more about who you are and what you do could you tell us about yourself
2: sure um Well, originally I am a biologist, but since then I have moved into politics and also kind of into political philosophy. And I'm active in the German liberty movement, so to speak. So we want to bring more, uh, well, economic and social freedom to Germany.
0: Well, I think, uh, I think having you there, and especially with your efforts uh, to, to promote liberty, and I understand you also, uh, you write? You write uh,
2: nonfiction? Yes. Um, I published two, nine, uh, I wrote two nonfiction books. Uh, the first one is about environmentalism, actually kind of criticizing the more fanatical forms of environmentalism when it comes to forestry you know, I argue in favor of of managed forests instead of some sort of wilderness. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second one is actually about political philosophy in the sense of free will, where I argue that you don't necessarily need free will in order to be individual and free. Um, But yeah, it's it's quite a complex topic probably for another day
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's i want to talk about this wonderful article that you've written for AmericanThinker.com, effective opposition to critical race theory now i live in the american west i live in idaho and i know that there is a lot of concern on the part of parents with children in public schools that crt or critical race theory is being taught to their children and you have some really sound advice in your article that can help people more effectively oppose CRT, because it, it seems like we make some mistakes along the way. People, uh, first of all, do they understand exactly what CRT is? And, and if we don't, wh- where do we need to shore up our understanding?
2: Well, maybe let me start on why I got interested in that topic. It's because while it began in America, it's coming to Europe. Of course, with with some modifications, because in Germany, we don't have a history of slavery, for example, and not even of colonialism, really, because well, Germany had some colonies, but nothing compared to the like United, United Kingdom. And so here, it's more focused on, on, on gender, of course, uh, and on migration, on modern-day migration. But still, it's very much the same. Um, And
0: let's 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 talk a little bit about uh, about the pedigree, if you will, uh, of CRT, because it's it's not just one all encompassing theory. It's it's actually part. It belongs to, as you point out in your article, a wider set of of leftist theories. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with these unless they've actually studied them. But but help us uh, recognize where does this mindset come from?
2: Sure. Um, it's part of what has been called critical social justice by uh, mainly James Lindsay and uh, other people like Charles Pincourt and who are working with him. Um, and this is these are kind of well classical liberals, maybe even a bit leftist who focus on this topic from the outside because the proponents of critical social justice um they keep it obscure they make it very hard for outsiders to even get into it which is why we need people like lindsay to uh yeah well work it out for us because we don't have the time to i don't know read decades of obscure uh humanities papers and social science papers um, and this is why I'm strongly re- relying on, on his work to, to tackle this subject. And, well, it's easy to see that it's not just about race. It's also about gender, of course. And as I said, it can even be applied to Germany, where we don't even have uh, that many racial differences, uh, maybe except for migrants, which come right now, but we don't have slavery and anything like that. And we've never had that, and, and, uh, uh, so, but it still can be applied. And this is what I want to like warn you of. It's not just about CRT. It's it's a more complex uh, thing.
0: Yeah. I, in your article, you point out something that I really hadn't thought about before, and that is the 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 people who are lining up right now, and they're parents, you know, concerned parents, and sometimes uh, legislators here in America, in the state legislatures, the lawmakers who are are lining up to explicitly ban the teaching of critical race theory. And in your article, you point out that may be the rallying cry for them but they're missing the mark if they just try to ban it outright could you explain why they they may actually overshoot what they intend to do if they just pass a law that says okay we can't teach this anymore
2: yeah well first of all it isn't explicitly taught um like the actual theory of political race theory is highly academic it's It's completely impossible to teach that to high school students. It's some weird, complex way of twisting the English language, which will totally go over the head. And uh, you basically need to study it for decades, if you really want to get into it. Or you need people like James Lindsay, Kind of give you a summary, but uh, what they are taught instead is more like you could say applied critical race theory and app- applied queer theory and all of these other things. Um, they are applied to all sorts of subjects. Subjects you can apply them to history, for example, when you teach high school students that. I don't know america was founded on racism and slavery and had nothing else going for it you know then you are applying these theories to history same you could apply apply them to biology you could for example argue that well there are more than two genders or something like that um, even though biology obviously only knows two sexes uh, mm-hmm. and Um, I don't know, you can apply it to geography by turning all of geography into some lessons on colonialism, you know? And this is why it's so difficult to stop it.
0: Yeah, you point out, and I had never heard this phrase before, but it now makes sense. They use crossover words. So there's, there's, a, there's a place to go if someone starts, you know, coming at uh, critical race theory. Well, we don't want this in our schools. Well, but this is, this is about diversity or this is about liberation. And suddenly the person who wants to ban CRT is, well, uh, you know, I don't want to ban liberation. I wouldn't want to ban diversity. And now they're the ones on the defensive.
2: Exactly. Um, this is um, this is good manual, Counter Warcraft, by uh, Pingot and Lindsay which really highlights all the strategies you know it's not so much about the theories it's about the strategies of the walk and um well you know the the whole critical social justice it was developed in western universities and it is specifically designed to sound good to educated westerners Westerners. you know it, it sounds like liberal values. It sounds very you know, nice and um, tolerant and everything, but then in the end, what diversity means to us is very different to what it means in critical social justice. In critical social justice, it means, well, people have different skin colors, different genders, and different everything, but no different opinions, because they all have to have the woke opinion. If they don't have the woke opinion, uh, their opinion will be disreg- disregarded as, well, having been influenced by evil white people, for example, you know? Right. Um, so this is not diversity. It's it's a trick because they will speak of diversity and to us and to, uh, you know, other people who might listen to the discussion, who might listen to the debate, um, you know they they might think it, it it is about difference in opinion and stuff like that, but it's about the opposite in fact.
0: Torben, I am so sorry we are out of time, but I appreciate your efforts on this. We'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Where can people find you on social media?
2: Sure. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, actually, by just entering my name, it's uh, I think I'm the only Torben Halbe in the world so far. So. Uh,
0: and we are back on moving forward with young voices i'm happy to welcome sophia and sophia you're gonna have to help me with your last name warringer is that correct correct okay always love it when i get it on the first try here she is joining us from london england and sophia in addition to being a young voices contributor tell us just a little bit about yourself
3: Thank you. Yeah. So I grew up in the northwest of England and Liverpool. I moved to London, where I now live, to study history at King's College London. And since graduating, I worked for a member of the House of Lords on family policy. And then for two and a half years, a member of the House of Commons and former Conservative Party leader, Sir Ian Duncan Smith MP. And re- most recently, I've just moved to work for a think tank the Centre for Social Justice, which is a centre-right think tank that looks at roots in and out of poverty.
0: Fantastic. You know, it's, it's been interesting to watch, uh, with, with the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, um, the, the affection and, and the deep uh, attachment that, that British society has for uh, the royal family. And you have an article here about Her Majesty the Queen was proudly feminine, but not a modern feminist, talk to me a little bit about uh, about the queen and about um, her role. I mean, she, she's probably one of the most prominent heads of state, you know, with within my lifetime, uh, who was a woman and a very long time head of state, for that matter. Um, are, are there are, are some of the feminist camps trying to claim her as their own, and are they right to claim her as their own?
3: Yeah, so I agree since the death of our late Queen, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, there's been a huge outpouring of grief in Britain and indeed around the world uh, for what she stood for and everything that we're grateful to her for. And something that's been interesting is... The fact that some people have labelled her as a feminist. So, for example, Olivia Colman, who in fact played Her Majesty in the Netflix series The Crown for two series, has called the Queen the ultimate feminist. And she's also been labelled as a feminist icon for by Women's Hour presenter Emma Barnett, And while I do absolutely agree with some of that sentiment in that the Queen believed in equality between the sexes and, in fact, advanced equality in many ways between the sexes, which we can talk about later, I do think that the modern liberal definition of feminism actually downplays definitions of femininity. And the Queen was actually very proud to be a woman and very proud to be feminine in that role. And so I think some of these labels of calling her a feminist actually don't do justice to what she achieved because the modern liberal feminist movement sometimes tries to revert to very traditional definitions of what femininity and masculinity should be. And I feel like the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, actually uh, subverted and challenged a lot of those and i think that labeling her just as a feminist is actually slightly reductive to what she achieved
0: you give an example too of how um, current attitudes towards women um, sometimes tend to blur the lines for instance uh, i didn't realize that uh, joan of arc was actually kind of up for reinterpretation uh, according to the latest dogma
3: Yeah, exactly. So there was a bit of talk about this in the United Kingdom when the Globe Theatre, which is a theatre based very close to the site of where William Shakespeare's plays were portrayed and played, um, decided in their new production to portray Joan of Arc as a gender-neutral character. And I think the problem here is... The very importance of Joan of Arc is due to her gender, due to the fact that she was a woman. So she was born into a peasant family in France in the 1400s, and she had very little prospects in that society, which was very patriarchal and uh, very f- favouring rich and particularly rich men. And she was taken to the king, King uh, Charles Seventh of France at the time, and she believed she had these visitations from God to oust the English. And what she was eventually charged with was blasphemy by the English. And she was, as people will know, burnt at the stake at the age of 19 for her um, blasphemous views. But what's interesting is that she was charged for blasphemy. And one of the charges for that was for wearing men's clothes. So if she had been a man or if she had not been a woman, it wouldn't have been as offensive to them. And so, therefore, casting her as a gender-neutral character reduces something of what she achieved and what she had to overcome to be important and to be remembered. And I do think that modern liberal feminists are in danger, therefore, of erasing very important females from history by reducing something of their femaleness, reducing something of their femininity. And so, therefore, the decision to portray Joan of Arcus, gender neutral, may seem very progressive. And I understand that theatre has a role in challenging our perceptions and inverting um, portrayals of people, et cetera, and bringing fresh angles, but actually seems to be very uh, regressive in the way it wants to pigeonhole people that maybe challenge the gender stereotypes of their day. And so therefore, strong female characters from history, we look back and we think, how could they possibly female be female because they challenge the stereotypes of their day? So I do think that there is danger of erasing strong women from history if this trend continues.
0: You point out in your article too that uh, it's not just limited to Joan of Arc. I didn't realize this that Queen Elizabeth the First actually that, that uh, people have tried to portray the same thing as her. Well, you know, uh, maybe maybe she was non-binary too. Why would they say such a thing?
3: So what's interesting here is that. Queen Elizabeth I uh, was very acutely aware of her gender and how that played politically and socially and the social and cultural capital that that gave her in the time of which she was our Queen. And she made this very famous speech, as many people will know, when she addresses the troops on their way to the Spanish Armada, where she says, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. So in that, she shows how acutely aware she is that she is a woman and the limitations in that time would have borne upon her. But she actually uses her femininity to her advantage. So she uses her feminine charm as a political and diplomatic tool. She hangs the carrot of marriage over various people she wants to woo into her good books so for example on the table for a long time was her marriage to francis duke of anjou who is brother of king henry iii of france and that would have really strengthened the anglo-french alliance and she used the fact that she was a woman to entice them into thinking they could have stronger relationships with England. But what I think we need to remember is how acutely aware Elizabeth I was of the limitations that marriage would have brought about for her at that time in the fact that her mother, her own mother, was executed by her own father when Queen Elizabeth uh, was aged three, and the fact that her sister, Mary I, who married Philip II of Spain, had to pool all her authority and was therefore joint sovereign uh, with King Philip upon her marriage. So Elizabeth I was very aware of her gender and the limitations in that day of what that gender meant. And she used her femininity femininity to her advantage. So portraying her not as a female actually diminishes her achievements and I think is actually very worrying uh, for the way we remember women in history.
0: Let's bring it back to... um Queen Elizabeth II, and, uh, you know, for 70 years, she was the head of state. Um, a lot changed in 70 years. Was she resistant to change or was she able to to be flexible with, with some of the changing attitudes that society holds?
3: I mean, in some ways, I feel she was a product of her time. She was very rarely seen in trousers, for example, but in other ways, very radically reforming. So quietly in 2013, she updated the succession of the Crown Act to ensure that any children of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, who are now the Prince and Princess of Wales, would be in the line of succession, regardless of whether they were born a boy or a girl. And so that is actually incredibly important when you think of the hundreds of years of male preference primogeniture, which predated the monarchy. The fact that she quietly brought in this rule that women would be equally successing to the throne shows, I think, her reforming credentials and the fact she passed her own surname onto her children rather than her husband's surname and the way she was just comfortable in military uniform on horseback. um, All of these ways showed that she was proud to be a woman, but she didn't see that as a constraint and she had a very clear reforming agenda.
0: You make a wonderful case that uh, we should never underestimate the, the leadership qualities uh, of women. And I, I think uh, Queen Elizabeth the second is a wonderful example. Queen Elizabeth the first is a great example. Joan of Arc is a terrific example. We will have a link to your article in the show notes for this episode. Sophia, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media?
3: So I'm on Twitter at, at Sophia Warringer, and you can also follow my work at the Center for Social Justice.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It's a pleasure to visit with you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. I'm very happy to welcome Quinn Townsend to the program. Quinn is a Young Voices contributor. And Quinn, I'm going to ask you to tell us just a little bit about uh, some of the other hats that you wear. Sure.
4: Well, thanks for having me on today. I so I'm a contributor for Young Voices, which has been a lot of fun um, to write with them. I'm also the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum, where I write on a wide variety of policy issues um, from a free market perspective, all about Alaska. All
0: right, and I'm glad you and I are going to be talking about uh, energy, which. I'm not feeling it so much except at the gas pump, but uh, you know, to say that there's a bit of an energy crisis in the world is kind of like saying, yes, it can get cold in the Arctic in the winter, but it's it's an understatement. Talk to me a little bit about uh, about some of the potential uh, solutions for this energy crisis, and in particular, let's talk about your article, how without states' involvement, permitting reform in solving that crisis isn't going to be as effective. Where, first of all, how do we kind of encapsulate the, the energy crisis? Um, Can can you give us the thumbnail sketch of of where we stand?
4: Sure. Um, Energy is becoming expensive and harder to access. And I think Americans are not feeling it quite the majority of Americans are not feeling it quite as much as, you know, those in, in Europe right now. But it is it's difficult currently to get the energy that we need to keep our homes warm or cool if you live somewhere That is very hot Um, we need energy for to run all of our devices and our refrigerators and our cars. And um, we we need energy to be accessible and affordable for for families so that we can get to work and take care of our families. Um, So one very large solution at the federal level is permitting reform. It can be very difficult to get a new energy project that could be an oil well. It could be a wind farm or a solar farm or a geothermal energy facility. All of those things um, have to go through a, a very long environmental approval process um, at the federal level that can be very timely, time-consuming, and very costly. Um, and permitting reform is would be a great solution to to that problem.
0: Just out of curiosity, I know um, clean energy, particularly wind turbines and so forth, are, are really uh, something that's being promoted heavily. Is the permitting process any easier for clean energy, or is it pretty cumbersome for them as well?
4: Um, I don't, I'm not sure about the specifics of each different type of energy, but I know they still have to go through a lengthy environmental process that is still very costly and time consuming for companies that want to do that.
0: Okay. Okay. So, let's talk about uh, some of the things that are being done at the federal level uh, to try to address this. It seems like, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the words costly and time-consuming have come up a couple of times, and it seems like anything that, that has to make its way through that federal um, apparatus is going to be timely and cost-consuming. Uh, what are some of the ways that we could uh, better reform this process, or, or smooth it out, or, or even uh, streamline it?
4: hmm. So right now um, in politics, a lot of people are talking about permitting reform specifically because Senator Manchin from West Virginia um, was promised that there would be a per- permitting reform because he signed on to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and permitting reform would be a, a great thing, in my opinion, um, and one thing that would make permitting reform um make permitting processes easier and more efficient uh, for for many would be specifically to involve states in that process of um, reforming permits and also allowing states to to create their own permitting process for um, for lands that are within their borders.
0: Is that is that kind of control something that uh, regulators at the federal level are hesitant to to give to the states or to, to let the states assume?
4: Yeah. So my article specifically is about um, allowing states to permit energy project projects on federal lands that are within within their borders. And um, for listeners who are not out in the West or not familiar In the West, particularly, the federal government owns millions and millions of of acres of land. Um, Some states are, like Utah, are 60 percent federally owned, um, which means that the state of Utah is not managing any 60 percent of the lands within their borders. And um, this permitting reform um, could allow states to be involved in that permitting process for specifically for federal lands, um, which would help the process, the permitting process because state governments are typically more efficient than the federal government.
0: Well, that's, re- that's a relief to hear. Cause it means at least we have a fallback position at some point, but, uh, I, I have to wonder, um, what would it take for, for more States to, to step up? Do, do they complain? Do they, do they feel the costs are just too much? We don't have the, you know, the, um, the governmental structure or the funding to do this kind of thing. Is this why by default, especially in these Western States, it seems to fall to the federal government to assume that, or or is the federal government just going to say, look, we're in charge, no matter what you're going to do, what we tell you, you can do.
4: Yeah. So currently it's, because it's federal land, the federal government has management responsibility and all authority over those lands, and so states are not allowed to um, do the permitting um, for federal for projects on federal lands currently.
0: Is Is it likely that uh, we're going to see uh, greater? Uh, exploration. For instance, when I lived in Southern Utah, I know there was always a lot of controversy about um, oil and and uh, gas leases on, on federal lands. And it seems like mm-hmm. it was very important to the environmental movement that we shut those down at all costs. Um, I, I just want to get your opinion. Do the, do the oil and gas companies do justice to conservation? Can, can they ever make the, the, uh, the really hardcore environmentalists happy? Or is this always going to be a place where, where we're going to encounter friction?
4: Um, personally, I think there will always be friction because any kind, any kind of resource extraction, whether it's oil and gas or building wind turbines or you know building a new mine, is going to make some environmentalists um, unhappy. So I think there will always be friction, and I think that the public has made it pretty clear to companies that they care about things being extracted in a clean and safe and safe way and companies are aware of that um
0: yeah, yeah that. i i would love to see more of the states step up and and you know take the lead as far as um you know as as far as regulatory uh, control over over these processes mm-hmm. simply because they're the ones who actually live there, right? The people, the people there actually have a stake in the matter. Um, and I exactly. don't, I don't want to sound like I'm a doubting Thomas here, but sometimes I wonder if, if all the people, the the bureaucrats back there along the Potomac, really feel that same sense of stewardship that someone who lives within the state in question would feel when it came to to creating and executing those kinds of policies.
4: Yeah, I agree, and um, I think. For for people who live out east and don't, their state maybe doesn't have very much federal lands. Um, when you hear the word federal, the phrase federal lands, what you think of is Yosemite and Yellowstone and beautiful vistas and um, you know pristine lakes and that that needs to be preserved. And this um, this permitting reform that would allow states to be involved in the permitting process. Um, Still, it very much restricts what federal lands projects can happen on. Um, And there are so many restrictions that really the only land that that energy project projects could be on are just wasteland. I don't know who has driven through Nevada or (laughs) Wyoming or most of Utah. It's not a beautiful I mean they are beautiful places but it's really just a wasteland people are not recreating there there's there's little to conserve other than rocks and sagebrush and um so these projects wouldn't be happening on next to yellowstone they'd be happening in places that um are not as beautiful, I
0: guess. <laughs> no, I think you've said it as diplomatically as it could be said. Now, look, there are people who love to use those uh, those uh, not so beautiful lands. They'll go out there and explore and, you know, take their side-by-sides or just hike or whatever, mountain mm-hmm. biking, but uh, yeah, it's it, you almost have to see it in order to believe it. Hey, this doesn't look like Yosemite. <laughs> nope, yeah. it's just miles of nothing, which to some people like myself, that's a very beautiful sight too. Um, Quinn, tell us, where can people follow your work and where can they find you on social media?
4: Sure. I am Quinn underscore Townsend, um, numeral one on Twitter. I'm on there sometimes, but that's where you can find me online.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for taking some time to, uh, to join us today. I hope we get a chance to talk about this. I have a feeling that with energy issues being what they are, we'll have plenty of opportunities in the near future. Thanks again.
4: Thank you.